hello, Andrea. How's it going? Good. I'm doing good. How are you? Pretty good. Um, so where do we uh, find you today? So I'm working from home. Um, I actually moved during the pandemic to um, a place in Porter Square. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm so much happier in this place. Um, I actually moved in with uh, two roommates. And so uh, before I was living by myself and it was very isolating during the pandemic, but uh -huh. um, it's, uh, it's a lot better now. <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah. Have you explored the Porter? I used to live in Porter Square. Um, yeah. You know, the Christopher's. Um, yeah, well, the toad. Christopher's, <laughs> those are both shut down during the pandemic. Permanently? Um, I don't think permanently. I think yeah. just just during the pandemic. Um, mm. But yeah, everything is really convenient. Just, you know, like just run out to the grocery store. If I need anything. And yeah. um, you have two star yeah. markets near you, right? Shaw's. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, one's really close. Yeah. Um, cool. So I've really, yeah, I've really been liking it. And um, it just, it feels better just to be more like and the hustle and bustle of someplace instead of where I was, which was sort of Medford, Somerville, kind of had to drive to get, really get anywhere. I see. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other places in Porter Square that I, um, Sugar and Spice. Yeah. So yeah. I basically, <laughs> our building is right behind Sugar and Spice. Oh, no way. Yeah. Easy, easy yeah. access to a post office and stuff too. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, right. It, you really, kind of couldn't find a closer place to Porter Square than where we are. So. Gotcha. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a huge, it's a huge um apartment too. Like so there's this is the third floor. This it's like a third floor loft, which is my room is up here. Uh -huh. And um the second floor has the two other bedrooms and they each have their own bathroom. Oh, cool. And um yeah. And then this first floor is really spacious and a huge kitchen and oh wow it's, it's just it's all it's all yours like all, no well no I mean, the, like my three of you share yeah. Yeah, yeah three of you share mm -hmm. the whole yeah story building yeah. it's pretty pretty cool i mean it's a duplex really but yeah I'm, so it's not there's another unit in this in this physical building but yeah yeah um that's awesome it's, it's, what it's about, a great find for porter <laughs> yeah what about it what about bagel saurus that place is so hard to get into. So like right now, yeah. um, you have to order online like one or two days ahead. Like you can't oh, order no day way. of for wow. Bagelsaurus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I lived there before Bagelsaurus, but then um, uh, I don't know if you remember Maddie. She she was a big fan of. Big um, fan. Yeah. 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 I like Forge a lot. So Forge is kind of down Somerville Street. Um, but Forge has good bagels and um, it's like a bakery, coffee shop, lunch place. And they also oh. make ice cream. It's really good. Is that next to the CrossFit or no? I yes. Yeah. I think, oh, well, it's in a, like, it's in a shopping center. Yeah, yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Um, there's a CrossFit that's like not in that shopping center, but in one next to it. I, think. I see. I see. Yeah. 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 I used to, when I was taking courses at Tufts, I would bike by there uh -huh. and then go to Aeronaut Brewery and meet up with friends or something <laughs> after nice. my night class. Um, anyway, yeah. cool. So uh, what, um, 
Well, uh, any have you picked up any like pandemic hobby or pandemic routine that you um, share with us? So, I don't I don't know if I have picked up something specifically for the pandemic. Um, I I do I tend I knit, um, and so I've yeah. I've knitted in the past, and I still I still knit. Um, you know, and, but the projects, it's like, sometimes it'll be fast and then sometimes it drags out. But, um, and I, you know, I usually have multiple projects going at once. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, cool. uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, we have a listener question about, uh, you and knitting that ah. let's, but that let's, let's save that for later. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, yeah. So, what uh, what have you been working on work-wise? Work-wise, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I, I think there's there are really two main projects that I've been working on, and mm -hmm. one is um, using BigQuery to do uh, joint calling or joint genotyping. Mm -hmm. And um, so we we've sort of started calling that uh, in the in the code base. It's the like variant DB or variant store. And then, um, you know, Lee came back and, and we're, we're, use, we're going to use this variant store in all of us. And so he wanted more of a like product name for it. So he dubbed it uh, the GVS, the genomic variant store. So now, now in a lot of documents, uh, it's known as the GVS. So I see. Is, is this like a, like a cloud version of genomic uh, tile DB? Genom Genomic, so, genomic import, um, TileDB, the it, older incarnation of this? So I, I think that that is what, I think that's what like genomic DB or TileDB wanted to be. Right. I think we're doing a bit more than, than what they did. I haven't used those tools specifically, like I don't know them very well. So, mm -hmm. but, but basically what, what we're doing is, um, we are looking at GVCFs that get generated from haplotype collar. And we basically read through them and import into BigQuery um, the variant data and then the reference data. And for the reference data, we really, we're really trying to minimize what we store. So we just have it um, a couple of different like categories for the, for the state. So in your reference, you really just want to know, are you GQ 60 and above, or are you GQ 40 or 30? So we have a couple different like buckets for that. Um, so we basically get, get the information into BigQuery. Um, and then uh, one of the things that for joint genotyping that you typically do is you run BQSR um, to get the I guess it's the variant score recalibrator, uh, very variant quality mm -hmm. score recalibrator. Um, so uh, what we initially tried to do was um, sort of pull out a, a VCF that we could feed to um, the gnarly genotyper that then would, would create the sort of sites only VCF that you feed into VQSR. And we were having a lot of issues with scale um, and trying to pull that much data out. And so instead we were 
we were sort of turned the, you know, analyze the, uh, what data is needed for that sites only VCF, which is really just some sums and some medians. And so now we're actually doing those sums and medians in BigQuery. And so that we're just extracting out what we call a, um, a feature extract. So, so the features that are needed to train uh, BQSR to train the model. So that allowed us to really bypass um, some of the scaling issues that we were running into um, because you can more easily just within BigQuery say, you know, per site, per allele, sum these values or give me some medians and then write that out in a sites only VCF. I see. And what kind of scale are we talking about here? Is this like a, all of us, uh, like a million VCFs join genotyping? So that has been, yes, that, that has been the challenge that, that we were really trying to solve is to prove that we could joint call a million samples. And um, so we've done a lot of different testing at different levels. Um, and you know, we've done things where we have duplicated some data that we have so that it's up to a million to see if we can extract it. It's not quite as valid because it's duplication of, of like the 40,000, and these were exomes, the 40,000 exomes we had. Whereas if you really had a million different exomes, there's gonna be a lot more variation. Um, but, you know, we've, we've looked at, optimizing not just on time, but on cost. And hmm. uh, we, we're confident that this solution will scale to, to a million samples. And um, okay. so, yeah, we were initially like um, testing it out using exomes. And then when we realized that the, all of us is really gonna use this solution, uh, we, were, we switched to then looking at arrays because we heard arrays were gonna be delivered first in all of us. Mm. And then as all of us was getting and generating genomic data, they realized that the genomes are not really lagging behind the arrays. They're sort of generating array and genomic data at the same time. So then we switched to genomes because that's what people really want. Um, you know, if they have the choice, they want the whole genome data versus the array data. Mm. So we've kind of jumped around in, in some of our benchmarking, but the latest that we're doing is is whole genomes. I see. I didn't realize that the hierarchy of this in this in in terms of sizes, the genome is the most data, and then there's arrays between genome and exome. Oh, um, I don't think that's true. No, uh, I think we we started with exomes because that's what we had, uh -huh. um, and and we we only switched to arrays when we thought that's what all of us needed initially. I see. And then, yeah, so, um, and, and definitely arrays that are not imputed are smaller than, than exomes. Uh -huh. I see. Um, yeah. I see, cool. And so gnarly genotyper, is that, uh -huh. what, is that like Laura's <laughs> thing or? Um, it is, yeah, yeah, it is. So um, I like, I wasn't really sure the different, like what is gnarly genotyper, uh -huh. but I think gnarly genotyper is 
Well, I know that it's used to create the sites only VCF that goes into train VQSR. I'm not totally sure of the differences between gnarly genotyper and not gnarly genotyper. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. The, yeah. The regular. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, so this is project number one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And what is the, the other project? project. Yeah. yeah. So the other project was, um, it kind of starts. So bef um, when I first started spec ops, I, in addition to the joint calling project, I was right. working on um, mitochondria. Mitochondria. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, um, and one of the things about mitochondria is that it's a circular genome and um, you know, so there, we basically had to do something to be able to call variants across that artificial breakpoint in the circular genome. And, and then when I heard that Bonu had gotten um, this grant from um, CZI to work on um, bacteria and microbial uh, genomes, I was thinking, you know, some of the like bacterial genomes are circular. Um, and is there a similar problem in analyzing bacterial genomes? And I was like, well, I can implement something. I could automate what we did for mitochondria so that it could be used for bacteria. I see. So, so that's how I got started into the, into the microbial project. Mm. Um, and I think, oh, did you have another question? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Well, but is, is this kind of like a, like a mutex mitochondria mode? Right. So we had that, we had, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. So we have a mitochondria mode, but what we've been working on lately is a microbial mode. Whoa. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And initially it's just a, a few different filters, um, which is slightly different from mitochondrial. So we need two different modes, but um, what's really been happening lately, which is really exciting is Banu's been finding places where Mutec doesn't call certain variants. Um, so she has truth data and we've been going in and analyzing why aren't some of these variants being called. And so we've actually been learning a lot about um, like the aligning code and the pruning code. And uh, we actually, I think we're, we just made some changes. I think we fixed a bug or there were a couple of bugs that, you know, we found James fixed and then we were adding some uh, logic to the adaptive pruner so that we're able to recover more variants. So I've been learning so much doing that. It's been really, that's been really exciting. Yeah. What are like an example of cases when uh, it didn't. It didn't work. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, like oh. a like a variant was not called by Mutex. Um, yeah. 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 So I guess yeah, it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what what we had was um, we had uh, some bacterial data mm -hmm. that had um, it had two areas where there were variants. But the, um, the, the path in the graph that joined those two areas was a very low weight, the very low weight reference path. And so what was happening is one whole side of, of the graph 
the variants were not being maintained after pruning. And, and what was happening is that you get all your chains from, um, I guess it's from your De Bruyne graph and you, you look at like number of um, incoming chains and number of outgoing chains and you figure out which is gonna be your best seed chain. So you start with a chain that has like the most weight or evidence. And then from there, you look at the different chains that are coming in and going out. And then you, you decide, well, which ones you're gonna keep and which ones aren't good that you're gonna throw away. And because there was a low weight reference chain, that one did not get chosen to, to stay in the graph. And so none of the variants on the other side of that chain were kept. So they got removed. And, um, you know, with a lot of debugging and, and there were some other, there were a few other errors um, in some of the code that would recover. Like if you did have, and it's related to dangling ends. So our particular variant was um, off of the reference. It had one path off the reference and then off of that path was another dangling head. So it was like, it was sort of like two forks off of the reference. And um, there was only one path that we, that our variant was in. And, um, but basically what we did is we just added some logic that um, when you're deciding which chains are good chains to follow, um, we kept in the check for is the, is the chain weight above a threshold, but we added in, or is it the reference chain? So adding in, you know, making all the reference chains look like good chains, basically recovered um, the algorithm to look at the second half of that graph. And then we got our variant, so. Cool, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Remind me chain, so as I was listening, I was gonna replace yeah. the chain with like a path in the, uh, like a path between like, whatever in intersections in the graph, yes. is, that, is that roughly correct? Yeah. yeah, so a chain is just any consecutive, you know, consecutive camers um, until there is a vertex that has a camer, another camer joining it. I see, Yeah. until yeah. you hit a fork in the road or yeah. whatever intersection. Right, right, gotcha. yeah. Cool, awesome, Yeah. Well, that sounds exciting. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, and yeah, and Banu has a few more variant types that she's seen that we're not calling. So like, we'll, we're gonna continue to look for other ways that we can recover some um, variants that aren't being called. I see. And the, the yeah. truth uh, for bacteria come from like arrays or something or? So um, I believe that we have some truth data that comes from, um, so we have Illumina calls and then we have two long read calls. We have PacBio and, and Nanopore. Whoa. And somebody's done a lot of analysis um, to sort of validate the truth data. Um, um, yeah. And, and part of the, there is some work that we have, I think that we have money for related to um, another grant where we might be able to generate some, some additional truth data for other organisms using cool. long reads yeah yeah but i think karen i think that i think karen might be the one who's going to be doing that 
as part of his work. And then we'll get to use the truth data for more validation. Gotcha. Awesome. Um, cool. Um, now I'd like to move on to the listener questions, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so just pulling this up now. Um, uh, yeah, so, so Sam Friedman asked about um, uh, sailing. How, how's that been? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what, do you, so, what do you like about it? Yeah, so I, I really, uh, when, I, when I moved back, so I lived in, in Boston back in 2007, 2008, and, and started sailing at community boating. And um, I moved back here in, in the summer of 2016, partially, you know, to, to take um, like a, a package of sailing classes. It's, it's sort of like there's three main sailing classes that get you up to a level where you can charter boats like in the BVIs or, you know, charter boats that you can take on a multi-day trip and stay on the boat. Mm -hmm. And um, so, uh, yeah, so I took the, those classes that summer and then, you know, I ended up loving it. And then I also ended up getting, you know, finding a job at the Broad that following fall. So I've been able to stay out here and, and sail in the summers and, um, and it's funny because every spring since then, I have sort of boat fever where it's like, am I going to buy a boat? Is this the year I'm yeah. going to buy a boat? I remember, it, yeah, I remember <laughs> having a conversation about this maybe like a year ago or two years ago. Yeah. 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 Did it's you buy like, one this year? The pandemic? Not yet, purchase? but no, yeah. no but, but yeah, again, it's, it's like, it's, a, oh, it's almost spring. It's I'm looking at boats. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, okay, here's a couple I'm going to go look at and maybe mm. this will be the year. Mm. And um, yeah. I think I think also like given that I think things are changing where it's going to be more acceptable for people to work remotely um, that it yeah so like the idea is kind of be able to work from the boat whoa um, that's yeah and that's kind of the dream <laughs> yeah 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 that's awesome yeah um, but so COVID really put a dent into my sailing last summer. I didn't join the club I normally join because I wouldn't have been able to have friends come sail with me. And, and the boats that I like to sail, you need at least one other person. Um, right. Yeah. Just ducking under the boon, right? Every the boom, yeah. Yeah, you gotta watch out for the boom. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so what, what's your uh, favorite thing about it? Um, is it the... the communal aspects of it or is it like you know kind of catching like reading the wind or whatever yeah I think it's um I like the challenge of it it's uh you know every time you take the boat out there's something different and mm. it's like a mental exercise as well as a somewhat of a physical exercise I mean it's not like running a marathon but like when you need to you know, raise the the mainsail or you know trim in a sail. There's a moment where you really need to get something pulled in or or, or reeled in. Um, yeah. And then and then also just you know when you've got a good wind and you're just cruising along in the water and there's no engine noise and it's just it's that's just a great feeling. Just I see. Yeah, moving along, just 
with only the wind and no other noise. <laughs> right. Yeah. Have you seen like a whale? Mm -hmm. the, yeah. Yeah. Sailing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we were, yeah. Um, do you know, Kristen Connolly, she, she uh, used uh, to work at the Broad. Uh -huh. She uh, is the main person I take sailing when I have multi-day trips. Um, I see. And we were sailing from um, P-Town and we were mm -hmm. going to sail over to like Manchester by the sea. And we saw some whale watching boats mm -hmm. and we were like, all right, we're going to go follow them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we did, and we saw whales. And so we were just, you know, wow. I just had the motor on and, um, you know, basically just hanging out with the whale watch boats were, and we would see whales surface and go under and, oh. um, yeah. That's cool. Just, I'm, yeah. yeah. I'm reading, I'm reading Moby Dick right now. Yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, like whales and uh, New Bedford and all that is pretty fresh in my mind. Um, yeah, that's on, it's in my, it's on my list of audiobooks to listen to. I haven't, yeah. I, have, I never read it, but yeah, it's on my yeah. list. So let's see, next question. Uh, so, so this is from David Benjamin. Uh, he asks, what is the purpose of meeting in your life? <laughs> Yeah, so I, um, you know, growing up, I was very math and science oriented, and I, I sort of felt like I didn't have a creative side, which huh. is not true. I mean, people, even if they are science or math oriented, there's a lot of creativity that goes into those things. But I mean, I feel like I was bad at art and, you know, bad at singing. And, you know, I just sort of felt like I'm not really a creative person. Um, and I actually um, kind of like after college-ish got into jewelry making. And um, so I did that for a few years and that kind of let me realize I do have a creative side. And, um, and then, you know, that kind of got old and there were some friends that had been knitting. And so I, my friends taught me how to knit and that has become another creative outlet. Um, hmm for me. But I think one thing that's really cool about knitting is um, if you're knitting a very um, symmetric pattern, um, there's a way that you can fix a mistake. Like if you, if you, so there's two main stitches in knitting, there's a knit stitch and a purl stitch. And, you know, if you're following the pattern, but you accidentally do the wrong stitch, and then you've gone multiple rows later and you're looking you know, at your work and you can see this obvious flaw. Mm -hmm. um, there's a way that you can basically in your work, go over to where that stitch, um, like the section of the work where that stitch is, you can drop that one stitch and see the one stitch drop all the way down to your mistake. And then you can fix it and then pull the stitch back up. And so, it's sort of mm. like debugging and that yeah. really helped me understand like the difference between a knit stitch and a purl stitch and how to recognize it and huh. how to fix it so there's a kind of a cool aspect to yeah, that's very um, cool yeah. to knitting yeah but that huh. once you yeah when you start making like everybody makes mistakes but then if you like really want to learn how to fix it and uh you know there's some tutorials on that but it's it's really pretty cool gotcha yeah. awesome um yeah, so here's a question from Megan. She um, she wants to 
um, hear about uh, your study. Uh, you studied neuroscience. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, if you could tell us something about that. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, the way I got into it was actually, up, you know, my undergrad is in computer science, and um, then I went into grad school in computer science, sort of the next the next year, and um, I ended up not knowing exactly what I wanted to study, but I kind of, I ended up in, um, in the AI group and ended up working on a project that was a neural network. Um, but it was a, it was more of a biological model than it was something like, um, for classification or for gameplay or something like that. Uh -huh. And I was reading the papers, um, the neuroscience papers of the experiment um, that you know other neuroscientists did, so that I understood what I was modeling, and I just fell in love with neuroscience, hmm. and I, which was surprising because I didn't think I really liked biology that much. Like I didn't like in undergrad for my sciences, I took chemistry and geology. I didn't even take biology, hmm. and it wasn't until I found out about neuroscience that I found like my, my niche in biology kind of. I and, um, and so I had, um, I actually was on, um, at school in a fellowship and I had three years for my master's and I spent most of the last year just taking like sort of the pre-med classes or the classes that I would need if I wanted to come back and, and study neuroscience. So I took cell bio and developmental bio and um mm. oh you know to have like a core base classes and then eventually yeah, I went and I worked in industry and then was getting kind of burnt out and applied to grad school and got into neuroscience program um cool and what I, yeah what I was interested in was was plasticity so that's the ability of the brain to change mm. through learning um sort of learning and development um and I, I got to, you know, I got to do a lot of really cool things and learn a lot. Um, I looked at, I, I did some, um, uh, I forget what it's called. You, you could do like a, the first year was just like rotations, just three different rotations in different labs to kind of see what you wanted to do. So I was like analyzing EMs, um, electron micrographs, looking, you know, tracing neurons and synapses for a 3D rendering tool that they had. So that was really cool, like learning what everything looks like in an EM. And um, and then I eventually did a rotation and joined a lab that studied uh, a kind of plasticity that's known as intrinsic plasticity, which is different. If you know plasticity, like long-term potentiation, or that's LTP or LTD, which is synaptic plasticity. So it's strengthening or weakening connections between neurons at the synapse. So that's one type of plasticity. And the, the lab that I joined studied intrinsic plasticity, which basically um, changed the resting, slightly changed the resting potential of the neuron itself to make it either easier or harder for the neuron to fire. 
So instead of it being like strengthening or weakening connections between neurons, it basically changed the ability of that neuron, you know, the neuron's resting state and its ability to fire. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, hmm, interesting. So, so let, let's say you lose eyesight, you know, and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I guess you're hearing gets better or something right that's is that an example of plasticity um so i would say that if you if you lose your eyesight then you are going to have more attention focused on sound mm -hmm. and and so i do think that that you know the neurons that are transmitting sounds and different sounds might get strengthened um and you know, a lot of it depends on when an injury happens. Um, like, especially like if, if, if people are born without and, and missing like major portions of their brain, mm -hmm. but, but they're born that way and they develop, most people, you would not be able to tell by just interacting with someone that they have a portion of their brain missing because like uh, the brain can just take over mm -hmm. um, during development to, to create the pathways that are needed. I see. Um, but then if you're an adult and you've really established these pathways and you lose, you know, or injure part of your brain, um, with, with, you know, if there's still some ability um, with reinforcement of different pathways, you know, other areas of the brain can take over and start providing some of that function. Um, yeah. It's like one example is if somebody has a stroke and it's very hard for them to use, let's say their, their right hand. Uh -huh. So they might be tempted to try to learn how to do things with their left hand. Mm -hmm. But if they continue to, to try to do things with their right hand, you can still see improvement. You can still see new connections being made and, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it's going to be like a miracle or whatever, but like there are there are studies that show that um, your brain is still very adaptable, even you know yeah. as you age. Yeah, you can, cool. You can change and learn. <laughs> yeah, I remember I remember reading about this in like Oliver Sacks's book, um, mm -hmm. like Anthropologist from Mars or something. Yeah. Uh huh. Very yeah. cool stuff. Kind of inspiring too. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. His books are really neat. They have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of psychology in there too, like psychology yeah. and neuroscience. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. There's some people who, when they look at a clock and they try to draw it, will put all the numbers just onto like one half of the clock face, you know, instead of, and so it's, it's an indicator that they're ignoring half of their um, spatial, like, they just ignore the left half of things. So they, they can see the whole clock and the numbers, but they, as they think they're right, drawing it, they just draw it onto the right half. I mean, that's one of his stories. Like, huh. I think the book that that's from is uh, the man who mistook his- Wife for a cat. Wife, yeah, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, hat, yeah. For a hat rack, yeah. I think. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, cool. Uh, speaking of books, um, yeah. Um, as like a wrap-up question, do you have any books that you're reading recently or shows or music? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I listen to a ton of Audible. 
Mm. Um, and um, I mainly listen to fiction. Um, I'm trying to think what are like, I have some really good sort of sci-fi sort of all time favorite books. Um, yeah. Yeah, so there's a couple of good ones. One is uh, called 14 by Peter Kleins. Hmm. Um, and it's about a, apartment 14 in, in an apartment building. It's got some sci-fi aspects to it. Um, and, um, oh, another one of my favorites is called, uh, I think it's Mr. Penumbra's 24 hour bookstore. And it's also a sci-fi kind of, th those are kind of like not, uh, I don't know, like not your typical sci-fi, a little bit more seemingly based in reality that has kind of a sci-fi twist. Oh, to see. it mm -hmm. yeah um, cool yeah this has been great <laughs> yeah so yeah thanks <laughs> joining me for this conversation absolutely um, thanks thanks for inviting me and, and listening to me ramble on <laughs> <laughs> all right i'm gonna press pause here okay um All right, this is Takuda again. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.